Hello everyone, my name is Diret Ladi. I'm a law professor at the University of Pretoria in South Africa um, and a member of the International Law Commission. The topic of my lecture today is immunities and the obligation on states to cooperate under the Rome Statute. So the lecture will focus on the International Criminal Court. In particular, I want us to address two critical sets of rules in the Rome Statute framework. The first set of rules relate to immunities, and the second set relates to cooperation. I also want us to look at how these two sets of rules interact with one another. So to start off with, to look at the question of immunities, um, immunities is one of the most contested areas of international law currently. Um, if one thinks about the general debates and the discussions in the literature and even in court decisions relating to who are the beneficiaries of immunities, um, for what can immunities be claimed, what is the scope, the extent, the circumstances under which immunities can be raised, um, even more interesting and complicated, the relationship between immunities on the one hand and use Kogans. In the light of all of this, it is not surprising that the International Law Commission is currently engaged in a study of the topic of immunities. Now, where immunities are regulated in a treaty, one would expect that um, the circumstances would be relatively clear and that there would be no difficulties. However, complications may arise in instances where immunities are regulated by a treaty, but for some or other reason it is necessary to also apply customary international law. The Rome Statute, for example, addresses explicitly immunities or the lack of immunities in Article 27. However, it is possible that officials of non-states parties could appear before the, Rome, um, the International Criminal Court in a manner that would imply the application of the Rome Statute but still requiring also the application of customary international law in a manner that creates some complications. And it is this kind of interactions that I hope we will be able to discuss in the course of this lecture. The second set of rules that I wanted us to discuss, as I said, was cooperation. Now, cooperation is possibly one of the most important sets of obligations that rest on states' parties in um, the Rome Statute. It is often observed in the literature that the International Criminal Court is not a state and as such it doesn't have the tools and the machinery necessary to enforce and achieve some of the objectives that are spelt out in the Rome Statute. There is in fact a metaphor that has often been used. The metaphor is that the International Criminal Court is like a giant, which is to say it can do great, maybe wonderful things um, depending on one's perspective but that it is a giant without limbs, right? So it is great and huge and can do many things potentially, but because it doesn't have limbs, it cannot do these things. So states parties through cooperation collectively become the limbs of the International Criminal Court, enabling it to achieve um, its potential. So because of the centrality of um, cooperation in the Rome Statute, um, or in the ICC, um, the Rome Statute develops an elaborate framework for how states should cooperate, what kinds of cooperation or what kinds of um, cooperation and assistance is required from states, what are the exceptions, what are the modalities for cooperations. All of these things are regulated um, in the Rome Statute. Um, 
Of course, one of the most critical aspects of cooperation is also, also happens to be the most controversial and the most far-reaching, um, and it relates specifically to arrest and surrender. Um, so the Rome Statute also contains elaborate procedures for how the obligation to arrest and surrender fugitives um, under arrest warrants in the ICC um, is to be carried out. So today's lecture, as I've said, would look at the tensions that arise in the law as a result of the intersection between the, the, the rules in the Rome Statute relating to immunities on the one hand and the rules in the Rome Statute relating to cooperation. Let me also just say at the beginning that um, this topic, this particular question, has been the subject of judicial decisions and in the course of the lecture I hope we will be able to, to look at some of these decisions and um, engage on them. It is, I think, appropriate to begin the discussion by looking at some of the basic principles relating to immunities under international law. It should be said, first of all, that there are different kinds of immunities, and many of them are the subject of multilateral conventions. So you've got diplomatic immunities, for example, that are regulated under the Vienna Convention on, on, on Diplomatic Immunities or on Diplomatic Relations. You've got consular immunities that are also the subject of a convention. You've got immunities in relation to special missions, also the subject of a convention. And of course, you've got the immunities of the state itself, um, which is also subject to a specific convention, although that convention um, has not come into force yet. It's also worth mentioning that the latter type of immunities, um, immunities uh, of the state, um, in fact forms the basis of all other immunities. So the immunities that attach to individuals, either as diplomats um, or as uh, consular officials all essentially flow from the immunity of the state and is based on the idea of the, of the sovereign equality of states. General issues relating to immunities, in particular immunities of heads of state, heads of government, um, and ministers for foreign affairs are currently not the subject of a multilateral treaty um, and are currently under consideration by the International Law Commission. So far, the International Law Commission has adopted five draft articles, um, and the general thrust of the draft articles can be described briefly as follows. The International Law Commission has determined that there exists two types of immunities, immunity ratione personae and immunity ratione materiae. The beneficiaries of immunity ratione materiae are heads of state, heads of government, and ministers for foreign affairs, um, and this type of immunity covers all acts, private and official, and of course must be raised while the official is in office. The second type of immunity, that is immunity ratione materiae, um, is enjoyed by other state officials and can be raised in relation to acts performed in the official capacity. Both types of immunities, according to the, um, the International Law Commission, may be claimed before foreign courts. The question that arises is whether or not immunities can be claimed before international courts and tribunal. Now for this particular question, the decision of the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case um, is instructive. In that case, the court, the International Court of Justice observed that immunity does not imply impunity since there remains the possibility that individuals who are uh, beneficiaries of immunities 
can be prosecuted before international courts, the important qualifier being international courts having jurisdiction. More importantly, if one looks at the state practice, one finds that there is no practice granting immunity before international courts. If anything, there is practice in the contrary direction. If one thinks about the Nuremberg Tribunal, ICTY, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and so on and so on and so on. It's also important to say, however, that there is also no evidence that this practice is accepted as law, i.e. Um, is opinion, or rather that there's opinion juris suggesting that um, there is a rule of custom international law denying immunity before international courts. Moreover, if one looks at the statement of the International Court of Justice, one can see clearly that the International Court was not attempting here to lay down a particular rule of custom international law, but was simply laying out possible options through which an official enjoying um, um, immunity can be prosecuted. So to determine the rules relevant to immunity with respect to international courts, what we look at is not custom international law, but the constitutive instrument establishing the particular court. For the International Criminal Court, this particular um, instrument will be the Rome Statute. So it is important then that we turn to the Rome Statute to see what the Rome Statute has to say on immunities. And of course, the provision of the Rome Statute on immunities is a rather famous provision, um, from some perspective perhaps infamous. Um, but Article 27 of the Rome Statute provides as follows, and I will read it. This statute shall apply equally to all persons without any distinctions based on official capacity, in particular, official capacity as a head of state or government, a member of a government, or government official shall in no case exempt a person from criminal responsibility. That is the first paragraph of Article 27. More to the point relating to immunities, the second paragraph provides immunities or special procedural rules which may attach to the official capacity of a person, whether under national or international law, shall not bar the court from exercising its jurisdiction. So Article 27 explicitly provides that there will be no immunity before the International Criminal Court. An important question is whether or not Article 27 applies to officials of non-states parties. In answering this question, it is important to understand the general thrust of the Rome Statute, and in particular that the Rome Statute is not based on the idea of state responsibility, but rather on individual criminal responsibility, and this is provided for in Article 25. So Article 27 applies to individuals and not to states. Moreover, if one looks at the terms of Article 27, there is nothing in Article 27 to suggest that it is limited to individuals from states' parties. So from my perspective, as long as the court has jurisdiction in terms of its jurisdictional rules, which can be found in Article 12, then it applies the, the statute fully without any distinctions whatsoever. Again, this raises another question whether this is contrary to the principle that we find in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, that a treaty only binds states that have consented thereto. And again, the answer has to be no, it is not inconsistent. Because not providing immunity for officials does not amount to the creation of obligations on a state 
nor does it in any way derogate from rights that a state may have, because again it should be recalled that international law does not provide, as a starting point, immunities before international courts. But more importantly, it is also important to understand what precisely Article 27 does. Article 27 regulates the rela or deals with the relationship between an individual accused and the court, right? It talks only to what the individual accused can claim before the court, and it does nothing more than that. So I stated earlier that the duty of cooperation is central to the Rome Statute system and the success of the ICC. Um, the centrality of cooperation was already foreseen um, by the International Law Commission when the International Law Commission adopted its draft articles on a criminal court, on an international criminal court. And in that draft articles, already cooperation is emphasized. One can also see the centrality of cooperation in the negotiating history of the Rome Statute. So, for example, in the course of the negotiations, the Czech Republic, for example, stated that cooperation would be so important that, and I quote, no exceptions should be permitted. Peru similarly stated that there should be the broadest possible cooperation within the Rome Statute. Austria stated that there should be a mandatory system of cooperation and that any exceptions that are included in the Rome Statute should be explicitly spelled out, i.e. you shouldn't read in any exceptions that are not specifically there. You also have, and I think this is also reflective of the importance of cooperation, you also have um, annual Assembly of States Party resolutions emphasizing the importance of cooperation. And as I've said, um, the Rome Statute creates this elaborate system for cooperation, again, because of the recognition of the centrality of, of cooperation. But notwithstanding its importance, um, and notwithstanding the, the, the proposal by, by the Czech Republic that there should be no exceptions whatsoever permitted, the Rome Statute does create an important exception, and this important exception relates to immunity. This exception can be found in Article 98. Um, it's also a famous provision because, of course, it has given rise to very interesting debates um, and jurisprudence. Um, but Article 98 provides, and I quote, that the court may not proceed with a request for surrender or assistance which would require the requested state to act inconsistently with its obligations under international law with respect to state or diplomatic immunity of a person or property of a third state, unless the court can first obtain the cooperation of that third state for the waiver of immunity. So it is here, and not with respect to Article 27, that the question of the nationality of the offender or rather of the accused becomes important. So the question of immunity of non-states parties and the officials of non-states parties certainly become, becomes important here because the Rome Statute carves out this exception. So if you want to think about the whole framework, Article 27 applies to everyone who happens to be an accused before the court. Right? And then you have the rules relating to cooperation Right, which provides that states' parties have a general duty to cooperate. Now, the first relationship between these two provisions, between Article 27 and Article 98, is that for the purposes of states' parties, there is essentially a waiver of immunity such that there is always a duty to cooperate even in the arrest and surrender 
of officials of states' parties, right? Because states' parties have waived their rights, right? However, Article 98 does recognize that a state party may find themselves in a situation of conflict between various obligations. The obligations to cooperate under the Rome Statute on the one hand, and the obligations to respect the immunity of certain officials of non-state parties under custom international law on the other hand. And to mitigate this, not to do away with it completely, but to mitigate it, Article 98 creates an exception, no cooperation if cooperation would lead to violation of custom international law obligations relating to state or diplomatic immunity. So this should lead us to ask questions about the relationship between Article 27 and Article 98. And the first question that has to be asked is whether or not there is a conflict between Article 98 and Article 27. And here again, I can give a very quick answer. The answer is no, there is no conflict between Article 27 and Article 98. There is certainly a tension, but not conflict. There isn't a conflict between, because the two provisions are not coextensive. They do not address the same issues. Article 27 is concerned with the relationship between the accused and the court. Whereas Article 98 is concerned with two sets of relationships. It's concerned with the relationship between the court and states parties on the one hand and states parties and non-states parties on the other hand. So there is no conflict. But the tension between Article 97 and Article 98 can be illustrated in the standoff between the International Criminal Court and the African Union in relation to the President of Sudan, Mr. al-Bashir. As you know, Sudan is not a state party to the Rome Statute. But the Security Council in Resolution 1593 referred the situation in Darfur to the ICC. So again, if you think back to the framework that we talked about, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction, which means that Article 27 applies, which means the President of Sudan, should he ever appear before the International Criminal Court, would not be able to say, I have immunity, because Article 27 takes that away, and this is about the relationship between the accused um, and the ICC, right? What's important here is that the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction. The source of that jurisdiction is immaterial for the application of um, um, uh, Article 27, right? However, the African Union, based on Article 98, made the decision that African states will not cooperate. And of course, on the basis of this decision, several African states have decided not to cooperate. So Mali, Chad, twice, the Central African Republic, the DRC, Kenya, Djibouti, and Nigeria have decided not to cooperate. In response to all of this, the International Criminal Court has adopted several decisions on non-cooperation. Um, the most important of these, and it is these two that I will talk about, are the decisions, the identical decisions in the Malawi and Chad cases, and more recently, um, the decision of the International Criminal Court pretrial chamber in the DRC case. In the Malawi and Chad case, the court responded to the argument that there wasn't a duty to cooperate based on Article 98 um, by holding that under custom international law there was no immunity before international courts. 
But this conclusion, in fact, is misplaced because the issue before the International Criminal Court was not about whether or not there's immunity before International Criminal Court. The issue was about whether or not there was a duty to cooperate and whether or not Article 98 created an exception that was applicable to this particular circumstances. References to customer international law and even to Article 27, which the court also did, does not dispose of the legal argument raised with respect to Article 98 because it addresses a completely different issue. Now, this particular decision or these particular decisions, I, I refer to them as one decision when in fact they are two decisions, but as I said, they are, they are identical, were severely criticized in the literature, right? In the more recent case relating to the DRC, the International Criminal Court adopts what I call the Dapua Kande approach, which essentially permits it to come to the same conclusion as the Malawi and Chad cases, but perhaps with a little bit more acceptable from a, an interpretation perspective um, reasoning. The Akanda approach essentially accepts that Article 98 is an exception to cooperate with respect to officials from a non-state parties. However, according to the Akande approach, this does not apply to cases referred to the International Criminal Court by the Security Council. The reasoning here, it is argued, is that a referral by the Security Council essentially places the situation country in the same position as that of a state party, which would mean that the waiver that we talked about earlier applies, so Article 98 is not applicable. So the waiver implicit in Article 27 is essentially then imputed onto Sudan. This is a plausible argument, but the truth is that there is nothing in the text of Article 98, there is nothing in the text of Article 27, nor is there anything in the text of any other part of the Rome Statute that justifies the conclusion that a state party on referral by the Security Council, sorry, a non-state party on referral by the Security Council becomes like a state party, right? Certainly if this were the case, the Security Council in Resolution 1593 would not have felt the need to decide that there's an obligation on Sudan to cooperate because after all, Sudan would have been like a state party and therefore that obligation would arise from the Rome Statute. Right? An interpretation of Article 98 that is faithful to the object and purpose of the Rome Statute, I suggest, does not support the Dapo Akande contention. The question though is whether or not this means that there is no duty to cooperate and again here, the response would be one would have to look carefully at the provisions of the Rome Statute and in particular look carefully at the provisions of Article 98. According to Article 98, the exception applies only in respect of state immunity and diplomatic immunity. If you remember back to the very beginning of the lecture, we said that there are different kinds of immunity and yes, they are all related, but there are different kinds of immunity. So diplomatic immunity is a particular kind of immunity attaching to diplomats. State immunity is the immunity of the state itself. Article 98 only addresses these two types of immunity. Right? 
It does not apply to the immunity of heads of state, which, by the way, are currently under consideration, as I mentioned earlier, by the International Law Commission. The distinction or the idea that there are different types of immunities with different legal consequences is clear also from the various judgments and opinions of the International Court of Justice in immunity-related um, cases, such as the arrest warrant case and the mutual assistance in criminal matters case. This distinction, by the way, is also reflected in previous work of the Commission. Now, some scholars, such as Klaus Kress, have argued that as a matter of logic, if you really think about Article 98, the drafters must have meant by state immunity, they must have meant also immunity of heads of state, because after all, the state itself can never be arrested and surrendered to the ICC. So state immunity must mean something else. And in this context, it would then mean immunity of heads of state, immunity of um, heads of government, immunity of foreign affairs, and so on. This particular reason, I would suggest, ignores the fact that cooperation and assistance under the Rome Statute is not only limited to arrest and surrender. Assistance can, for example, refer to the freezing of assets. It can refer to the forfeiture of assets. It can refer to the provision of information, and so on, and so on, and so on. Right? So the interpretation of Article 98, this very restrictive, I admit, interpretation of Article 98, a textual and literal interpretation of Article 98, I would argue is also consistent with the object and purpose of the Rome Statute. I would also argue, very importantly, that it is consistent with the negotiating history. You will recall that earlier I said that the, 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 the states' parties negotiating the Rome Statutes were adamant that First of all, there should be the broadest possible um, 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 cooperation. Some states even suggesting that there shouldn't be any exceptions at all. And other states saying if there are any exceptions, these should be explicitly enumerated. Right? So that Article 98, which is an exception to cooperation, should be restrictively interpreted. And in this context, this restrictive interpretation is also consistent with the literal meaning of the language in accordance with the Vienna Convention. I have to admit that there is an attraction to the Dapo Wakande approach, which was eventually adopted by the International Criminal Court in the DRC non-cooperation case. The attraction is that it is a very clean interpretation, clean in the sense that it doesn't leave any conflict of obligations. It essentially suggests that there is a duty to arrest and surrender, and that's the end of the story. My own interpretation, which I assert is more consistent with the rules of interpretation, more consistent with the Rome Statute, is itself not so clean. But it is, again I assert, um, in terms of the rules of interpretation, um, the appropriate interpretation. But it is not so clean because it Im implies that there is a conflict of obligations. So on the one hand, under the Rome Statute, there remains the obligation to arrest and surrender. On the other hand, it suggests that there remains under custom international law an obligation on states parties um, to respect the immunities of the President of Sudan. But I do want to say that there is nothing exceptional in this situation. 
this is the normal result of the nature of international law, which by its nature is a decentralized system. The same situation can occur, for example, by a state concluding two treaties with two different, two conflicting treaties with two different sets of states. That is the nature of things. The answer to this problem is not expedient interpretation, but rather a careful process of lawmaking, including when drafting treaties and so on. Thank you very much.